Section 28 of The Flight of the Heron by D.K. Broster. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Eileen. Part 5, Chapter 5. This sea fog, Keith Wyndham decided, was worse than the inland mist. Thicker, more woolly, more capricious. Yesterday, for instance, one had wakened to it, and all day it had cloaked sea and shore and the wild, tumbled mountains of the rough bounds. Yet towards evening it had suddenly lifted, and the night had been clear and moonlit. But this morning the white veil was down again, and only now, some hours after sunset, was it clearing away. And this was all the more vexatious, because in the silver clearness of last night he had distinctly made out a strange vessel, a Frenchman, he was sure, anchored somewhere off the Isle of Rum. But in the day, thanks to that muffling fog, who knew whether she was still off the coast or no? Yet in a few minutes more, when the moon came up from behind the mountains, he hoped to be able to see as far as her anchorage. Meanwhile, followed by his orderly, he rode slowly along the flat shore in the direction of Mora. No one could accuse Major Keith Wyndham of neglecting Lord Albemarle's instructions. If anything, he went beyond them in his ceaseless vigilance. Quartered himself at Ariseg, he thence patrolled the coast in both directions, from Loch Nan Uaf, the adventurer's original landing place, to Morar of the White Sands on the other, and had his grumbling men out in all weathers, at all hours of the day and night, and for any kind of false alarm. But he spared himself still less than them, taking little sleep and covering miles every day, often on foot. If fatigue, like virtue, were its own reward, then he had that recompense. And so far it was his only one. But at least Keith felt tolerably certain that no fugitives had yet made their escape from his strip of coast, no fugitives of any kind. For, apart from using every endeavour to secure the person of the pretender's son, he had been instructed to prevent all communication with French vessels, of whom one or two might always be hovering off the coast. These nights, therefore, that this ghostly ship was visible, it naturally behoved him to be extraordinarily vigilant, since it was unlikely that she was there by chance. She was probably hanging about in hopes of taking off the price that he was after, and he was duly grateful to the moon last night for showing her to him. And surely it was time for the moon to appear now. Keith put his hand impatiently into the breast of his uniform for a little almanac which he carried there, and, encountering a packet which he also carried, was swept at the touch of it away for a moment from shore and ship and moonrise. Having left Fort Augustus for the coast so soon after you and Cameron had confided to his care the letter to his wife, Keith had had no opportunity of dispatching it. Moreover, why send that farewell letter now that its writer had escaped? So, not knowing where else to dispose it, he still carried the packet with a lock of hair upon him, a material token of the tie between him and the foe who had captured him a year ago, and had held him in a species of bondage ever since. The thought had never formulated itself so definitely until tonight, but by gad it was true. He had been hard put to it to conceal his exultation when, just before setting out from Fort Augustus for Moidart, he had heard of Ewan's escape and disappearance, and this news had, ever since, been a source of the most unfeigned pleasure to him. His sacrifices had not been in vain. They had been well worth the making. He thought of Ewan back at Ardroy, his doing, that. Ewan would recognize it, too. He had not failed in everything. 
and now he pictured you in lying hid in the mountains round Loch until the worst of the storm had blown over. He could not imagine him leaving Ardroy unless he were obliged, and, surely, not being in the list of proscribed, he could contrive to elude capture in those wilds. His wife would doubtless get news of him somehow, return to Scotland and visit him secretly, and in the end, when the price had been paid by those who had not had his good fortune, and there was for the others an amnesty or some act of indemnity, he might be able to occupy his home again in peace. It had so happened, Keith believed, after the fifteen. Was then his hope that they should meet again some day so impossible of fulfilment now? It was true that if he himself succeeded in capturing the prince, Ewan would not readily take his hand. However, no need to face that dilemma yet. But, in a sense, every day that the young gentleman was still in Scotland brought nearer the hour when he must try to leave it, and if Lord Albemarle were right in supposing that he would make for this stretch of coast, already familiar to him, he must soon approach the snare laid for him there. And the presence of that unknown ship last night seemed to indicate that the actual moment of that approach was very near. Ah, now at last he would be able to look for her, for the moon had pushed up over the craggy eastern summits at his back into a cloudless sky. Keith gave his horse to his orderly, and going along a low spur of rock, gazed steadily out to sea. The fantastic peaks of rum were even more unreal in the moonlight than in the day, and the Isle of Egg of an even odder shape. At first he thought that the stranger was gone, and then all at once he saw her, a ghostly bark on the rippling silver. She seemed to be off Morar, and, since some of her square sails appeared to be set, he doubted if she were at anchor, but she was certainly not sailing away. Keith had to make a rapid decision. At Morar he had an officer and thirty men stationed. That, surely, was enough. He could, if he wished, send back to Ariseg and bring up some more from there. Yet should Ariseg and not Morar prove after all the destined spot, and he had denuded Ariseg of watchers, he would be undone. Lochnan Uaf, the original landing place, was also provided with a quota, but the distance did not admit of bringing any soldiers thence to-night. He returned to his orderly and mounted his horse. I shall ride on to Morar, go back to Ariseg and tell the captain so, desire him to keep a close watch on the shore, for the Frenchman is lying off the coast again and nearer in than last night. The man saluted and rode off along the rough sandy road, and Keith was left alone with the ship, the moonlight, and his own excited thoughts. Not that he stayed to contemplate any of these. He pushed on at a smart trot for Morar, turning over the question of a boat, without which no fugitive could, naturally, reach the ship. He had temporarily confiscated every boat on this stretch of coast, except such as were genuinely needed for fishing, to which he had granted a permit. Even of the owners of these he was not sure, for they were all MacDonald of Clan Ranald's dependents. It would no doubt have been better to have burnt every one of their craft. Yet, even then, a vessel could easily dispatch one of her own, at the risk of being fired on. Keith took a last look at the burnished and gently moving expanse of which he must now lose sight, for here the track turned sharply to the right to run round the deep little inlet of Morar. But there was no visible speck upon the sea which might be a boat. And before long he was approaching the shoreward end of the inlet on the rough sandy track of a road, bordered by dense undergrowth, which ran round, 
a little higher than the level shore, under trees of no great stature. The tide was coming in fast over the dazzling white sands of Morar, snow under the moon, and drowning the little river which tumbled from the wild, deep freshwater loch behind, where Lord Lovett had sought his last refuge. It was so intensely quiet, and the tide was slipping in so noiselessly, that the roar of the double falls was carried very clearly over the water. Reining up, Major Wyndham listened for some sign of the patrol, which should be going its rounds from the quarters on the other side of the bay, across the river, and, to his displeasure, could detect none. This on a night when a French ship was off the coast, and the men must be got out at once. He touched his horse with a spur, and then pulled up again. What was that dark shape down there on the sand? A small boat, and so near the incoming tide, that in another quarter of an hour or so, it would be afloat. No fisherman could have been so careless as to leave it there, unless it were secured in some way. Brimful of suspicion as Keith was tonight, he had jumped off his horse in an instant, and thrown the bridle over a convenient branch. He knew better than to take the animal plunging into the soft, dry sand of the slope. He was almost up to his ankles himself, before he was down. Yes, he was right. The boat was there for no purpose authorized by him. It had only recently been brought there, for it was not made fast to anything. There were oars in it, but no nets or fishing lines. It needed no more evidence to convince him that the little craft had been placed there in readiness to take off some person or persons tonight to the strange vessel. The most lively anger seized Major Wyndham. What was that damn patrol about, not to have discovered this? He must certainly gallop round to their quarters without a moment's delay and turn out the lazy brutes. His pulses leaping, he plunged up the yielding sand to the tree-shadowed road, turned to throw himself into the saddle, and stood staring like a man bewitched. His horse was gone, gone as if swallowed up. It is not possible, said Keith to himself. I've not been down there two minutes. But evidently it was possible. Black though the shadows were under the trees, he could tell that they held nothing so solid as a horse. He looked up and down the empty white track, streaked and dappled with those hard shadows. He examined the branch. It was not broken, and the beast could certainly not have twitched his bridle off it. Someone had been watching him, then, and human hands had conveyed the animal away. Whither? Furious, he began to run back along the road. Its sandy surface was already too much churned up to show any hoof marks. He did not remember passing any crofts as he came. Though a man could hide in the thick bushes on the seaward side, a horse could not be concealed in them. He turned abruptly and went back again, remembering that there was a dwelling or two farther along, between him and the river. If some of these MacDonalds had stolen his horse and hidden it there, by heaven it should be the worse for them. What, however, was of paramount importance now was not the finding of his horse, but the beating up of the patrol with the least possible delay. Yet by the time that he, on foot, could get round to their quarters, or at least by the time that the soldiers arrived on the spot, the boat would probably have put out with her freight. That was why his horse had been spirited away by the ambushed spy in league with tonight's fugitives. Keith set his jaw and cursed himself most fervently for having come alone. The extraordinarily skillful way in which his horse had been made to vanish, 
joined to the inexplicable lateness of the patrol, only confirmed his conviction that it was the pretender's son for whom that boat was waiting. Then, at all costs, he must delay its putting out. Could he disable it in some way? Not easily, without tools, but he would do his best. Once more he plunged down the sandy slope. But the boat, though old, was solid. A knife, a sword, could make no impression on those timbers. Keith had a moment of angry despair. Then he remembered having seen in one of these craft, the other day, a plugged hole, designed to allow water to drain out, if necessary. Suppose this boat had one. Getting in, he peered and felt over the bottom, and at last, to his joy, his fingers encountered towards the after end a rough peg of wood sticking up like a cork. After some tugging, he succeeded in wrenching it out and slipped it into his pocket. He could get his thumb through the hole he had thus unplugged. He leapt out and ran towards the slope again in triumph. One of two things would happen now. Either the pretender's son and his companions would discover what had been done, and a new plug would have to be fashioned to fit the hole, which would delay them not a little, or, what seemed to Keith more probable, they would launch the boat and pull off without examining it, on which it would almost immediately fill and sink, and its occupants be forced to struggle back at a disadvantage, to assure, by that time, it was to be hoped, straightly guarded. Keith was halfway up the slope again when he stopped abruptly, for in the stillness he had distinctly heard voices, low voices, at no very great distance. The patrol at last, perhaps. He did not think so. The speaker seemed to be coming along the tree-shadowed road between him and the end of the inlet, the very road along which he was preparing to hasten. A party of Jacobite fugitives would most certainly not allow a soldier in uniform to run past them if they could help it. Was the prize going to slip through his fingers after all? No, hardly, in that unseaworthy boat. But he must perforce let the owners of these cautious voices pass him and get on to the beach before he started for the quarters of the patrol. Had the tide not already been so high, he could have cut across the sands and swum or waded the river, but that was out of the question now. He could only go by the road. He looked round for shelter and slipped cautiously into a high bush of hazel, which itself stood in a patch of shadow so deep that he felt sure of being invisible. Not only voices, but muffled footsteps were audible by this time, and presently a man, a fisherman, he thought, ran down the slope towards the boat. He had scarcely passed before it came to Keith with a gust of despair that he had set himself an almost impossible task. Now that the fugitives were already here, before he had even started, he could never get round and fetch the patrol in time, for if the Jacobites were left to embark undisturbed, they would discover and repair the loss of the plug. That man down there was probably discovering it now. But there was another way of rousing his dilatory men, for, unbelievably negligent as they were this evening, they could not fail to hear a pistol shot. That would bring them to the place in double-quick time, and, although to fire would naturally alarm the fugitives and make them embark with all the greater dispatch, there was gain in that, since, if it were not already done, they would pretty certainly not discover the loss of the plug. Keith drew the loaded pistol from his belt, but he put it at half-cock only, because he must wait until the party was well past him before firing, seeing that he was only one against he knew not how many. Centuries seemed to pass while he waited, and considered only to dismiss 
the idea of deliberately shooting at the pretender's son with a view to disabling him, for he could not in this light be sure of stopping short at that. His heart beat faster than ever it had done at Fontenoy or Culloden Moor, for this business was fraught for him with issues more momentous than any battle. What happened in the next quarter of an hour would decide his whole future, and no fighting had done that for him. A sudden fall of sand behind him startled him for a moment, but he dared not turn his head to look what had cost it, for three, four dim shapes were coming at last out of the shadows above and beyond him, and beginning to descend the slope. The tallest was limping badly, and he was also the principal figure, for the others, he could see now, were only gillies, and one was a boy. Had the pretender's son gone lame in his wanderings? It was quite possible. Or, or, God of heaven! The sand seemed to swim under Keith's feet. It was not Charles Edward Stewart. It was Ewan Cameron who had walked into his trap. Ewan Cameron who had just limped down past him on the arm of one of the gillies. Ewan, his friend, whom he had thought safely hidden in Lochaber. The bitter disappointment and the disastrous surprise of it overwhelmed Keith, and he stood there stupefied. Once more he had come on a fool's errand, not the first since he had watched the coast. This was Edinburgh over again, but a much more sinister repetition of it. For the net which he had spread for the arch-rebel was not empty. It held a lesser but indubitable prize, a chieftain, Lochiel's kinsman. With a wild sense of being in a net himself, he realized the cogency of the arguments which he had used against Guthrie. If Ewan Cameron was too important to shoot out of hand, he was also too important to let go. And he saw Ewan sent back to the scaffold after all, and by him, tied on a horse again by his hands. Or, since the boat was holed, and Ewan was lame, he would drown, perhaps, when it sank. The men were already pushing it nearer to the water. Stabbed to alarm by that thought, he stepped almost unconsciously out of his sheltering hazel bush and stood at the edge of the shadow with some vague notion of shouting to warn Ardroy. No, what he had to do was to fire and bring the patrol here quickly and arrest him. He was to stop all communication, to allow no one to leave, much less a chieftain and a kinsman of Lochiel's. "'God help me,' he said aloud, and put a hand over his eyes. There was a sudden crackling of broken stems, a fierce exclamation behind him. Something glittered out of the shadow, and Keith swung quickly round, just as the man who had been tracking him for over a week sprang down upon him. And so he did not receive Lachlan McMartin's dirk between the shoulders, as Lachlan had intended, but in his breast.' Leaning on young Angus's shoulder by the boat, Ewan watched the Morar fisherman hastily fitting in the spare plug which he had brought with him, because, as he had explained, the Redcoats had played the trick of removing one from Ranald Moore's boat the other night. The fates had indeed been kind. No patrol this evening. If they were quick, they would get out of the bay without a single shot being fired at them. The boat was being pushed down to the water, when all at once the lad Angus gave a little cry, clutched at his master's arm, and pointed up the beach. Ewan, turning his head, saw two men locked together on the sandy slope, saw one drop and roll over, had a dim impression that he wore uniform, and a much clearer one of a wild figure running over the sand towards him with a naked dirk in his hand. 
Young Angus tried to throw himself in front of his chieftain, but the grip on his shoulder, suddenly tightening, stayed him. Moreover, in another moment, the spectre with a dirk was on his knees at Ewan's feet, holding up the weapon, and, half sobbing with excitement, was pouring out a flood of words as hot as lava. Maki Kellane, I've kept my vow. I have avenged you, and saved you, too, though I knew not till the bedag was bare in my hand that it was you who had passed. The Englishman would have betrayed you a second time, but he lies there and will not rise again. Oh, make haste, make haste to embark, for there are redcoats at Morar. Despite his disfigured face, Ewan had recognized him at once, and the meaning of his words, for all their tumbling haste, was clearer still, horribly clear. Frozen, he tried to beat that meaning from him. And God's curse on you, what have you done? he exclaimed, seizing his foster brother by the shoulder. If you have really harmed Major Wyndham. But the moon showed him the bloody dirk. With a shudder, he thrust the murderer violently from him, and, deaf to young Angus's shrill remonstrances, started to run haltingly back towards the slope. Surely, surely Lachlan had mistaken his victim, for what could Wyndham be doing here at Morar? But it was Keith Wyndham. He was lying on his side, full in the moonlight, almost at the bottom of the slope, as if he had been thrown there. Stunned, perhaps, thought Ewan wildly, with a recollection of how he himself had lain on Culloden Moor, though how a dirt could stun him, God alone knew. Halfway down the slope lay a pistol. Calling his name, he knelt and took him into his arms. Oh, no hope. It was a matter of minutes. Lachlan had used that long blade too well. As he was lifted, Keith came back from a moment's dream of a shore with long green rollers roaring loudly under a blood-red sunset to pain and difficult breath and Ewan's arms. He knew him. I... I did not have to fire, he gasped, but Ewan could not realize what lay behind the words. Go, go before they come from Morar. My God, my God, exclaimed Ewan, trying to staunch the blood which that spotless sand was already drinking. Oh, Wyndham, if I could only have warned you, if I'd known that he was here. There is a hole in the boat, said Keith, with increasing difficulty. I took out the plug. They have put in another, one they had in readiness. Wyndham, for God's sake, try to... Try to do what? Your letter is still... I had no... Duncan, Angus, called Ewan desperately. Have none of you any brandy? But his men, who had run up, were intent on another matter. Come, the boat is ready, and I think the redcoats are stirring over the river, said Duncan Cameron, laying a hand on his shoulder. Come, Mackie Kellane, come. Ewan answered him in Gaelic. I shall not stir while he breathes. But the dying man seemed to understand. Go, Ardroy. I implore you. He began to fumble at one hand with the other, and managed to pull off the signet ring which he always wore, and to hold it out a little way. Ewan took it, not knowing what he did. I was watching for the pretender's son, went on Keith, lower and lower. Then I saw it was you, and I had to try to decide a duty. No, it is just as well. I could not have borne. 
He sighed and shut his eyes. Ewan held him closer, still trying to stay the flood, and trying, as he knew, in vain. Yet Keith only seemed to be going to sleep. He was murmuring something now, which Ewan had to stoop his head close to hear. And then all that he could catch were the words, Desire. Friends. Always. Yes, yes, always, he answered in anguish. Always. But there would be no always. Oh, if only you had not been in that madman's path. But that, at least, was not fortuitous. Yet, to Keith, the assassin had only been some man of Morar in league with the embarkation. He reopened his eyes. Your hand. Ewan gave it to him and saw a little smile in the moonlight. Have you been burying any more cannon? I always liked you, said his enemy clearly, and a moment after, with his hand in Ewan's, was gone to that place where an enemy never entered and from whence a friend never went away. Ewan laid him back on the patched sand and, getting to his feet, stood looking down at the man to whom the heron had brought him. Foe, enigma, saviour, victim of a terrible mistake. And friend, yes, but it was too late for friendship now. It had already been too late at their last meeting, which had not been the last after all when he himself, as he thought, was standing on the threshold of death. But it was Keith Wyndham who had gone through that door, not he. Had he known that he was dying? Every word of the few he had spoken had been about him. Then, through the haze of shock and grief, penetrated the sound of a distant shot, and he remembered that there were other lives than his at stake. Go, go and hide yourselves, he commanded. But the two Camerons shook their heads. Not until you are in the boat, Marquis Kellen. I will come then, said Ewan. He would rather have stayed now. But he knelt again and kissed Keith's forehead. And that it should not be found on him, an equivocal possession, perhaps, he drew out his own letter to Alison and slipped it, all sodden, into his pocket. Then he suffered the gillies to hurry him down to the boat for already it was clear that the soldiers were crossing the river, and some twenty yards away a couple of ill-aimed bullets raced spurts of sand. By the boat was waiting Lachlan, Lachlan who, directly he was recovered from the result of his first attempt by Loch Tarf, had once more set about the fulfilment of his vow, who had hung about Inverness through July and found no opportunity, lost track of his quarry when he went to Fort Augustus, picked it up again in Moidart, and had hardly let him out of his sight since. It was he who had removed the horse. Ewan, my brother, forgive me, forgive me. Ewan turned on him a terrible face. Never. You have killed my friend. Never. Then as well have my life too, cried Lachlan. The red and dirk, which a year ago he had been moved to fling into the loch, spun glinting through the moonlight and splashed into the sea, and its owner, turning, ran headlong towards the road and the oncoming patrol. Soon the noise of shots and shouting could be heard no longer, only the creak of the oars and the rough rowlocks as young Angus and the fishermen pulled hard over the moonlit sea towards the French privateer. But Ewan sat in the stern sheets of the little boat, with his face buried in his hands, and cared not that he went to safety. 
The day would come when, pondering over his memories of those broken sentences, recalling the pistol lying on the sand, he would arrive at a glimpse of the truth and guess that Lachlan's blade had saved Keith Wyndham from a decision too cruel, and that perhaps he had been glad to be so saved. But he would never realize, how should he, that the tide which for a year had been carrying the Englishman, half-ignorant, sometimes resisting, among unlooked-for reefs and breakers, away from the safe, the stagnant dead sea of his choice, had borne him to no unfitting anchorage in the swift death, devoid of thoughts of self. For Ewan saw Keith only as a loser through meeting him, a loser every way, whereas, in truth, he had been a gainer. A hail came over the water. They were approaching the privateer. He tried to rouse himself from his stupor of grief and regret, and from the self-reproach which stabbed scarcely less deep because it was costless. And as he did so, the kind moonlight showed him his friend's ring upon his finger. End of section 28